Yes, it's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. Welcome to the Backseat Driver Podcast Race Retro 2023 Special with its me, Mark Stone. A smaller show than in previous years and all the better for it. It meant you could walk round, see everything and still have time to chat to all your friends. This year I was able to have a good chat with Christiane Ireland who is finally following in her father's footsteps in his island of course being one of the great Formula One drivers from way back when so she's now taken to racing a mini after all these years. I also had the chance to chat with Bill Vero of Ever Oaks Helmet fame the company that supplied people like Sterling Moss and Jim Clark with their crash helmets. And finally, Pierre Summy of News d'Ascension, an online French classic car magazine that is going from strength to strength. The French are extremely keen on the printed magazines and online magazines, far more than they are in England. So sit back and enjoy my chat with three great folk from... Race Retro 2023. I'd like to welcome to Backseat Driver a previous radio show guest uh, who, shall we say, in many ways has a lot to live up to given who her father was. Christian Island, welcome back to the Backseat Driver. Mark, it's very good to see you. And yes, I've got a load to live up to, I have to say. And I remember Sterling, when I last saw him, literally two years before he died, he said, you've got some big boots to fill. And I thought, I'm still trying. (laughs) Now, it's taken you a while to do it, but you are finally behind the wheel of a competition car. I am, Mark. And it was by complete fluke at Chelsea Walsh. Um... Out of the blue, not expected at all. And you know when you're asked that question that you think, am I dreaming this? Pinch me. And they said, you know, would you be interested in in driving? And I was thinking, of course. What I didn't expect was two days later for them to give me a call and say, we've booked you in to drive at Goodwood um, in a speed trial. And I'm thinking, they don't know me from Adam. But I took up the challenge and what a lovely couple. Um, and it's a Mini Cooper S, a Mark III, so it's not an early Cooper S, but it's got all the right credentials. Um, it's a great little car. I love it. It's called Morris, by the way. <laughs> so what's it finally like to be emulating your dad? Scary, um, enthralling, inspiring, and um, it's, it's weird. When I went round Goodwood, that was emotional. My first time round Goodwood was emotional because Dad had, you know, trundled round there many a time, done well, spun, crashed, you name it. And I thought, I just hope I'm not going to follow in my dad's footsteps. I think for me, it was the challenge of the track because you know what everybody's like. Everybody for about a month prior to me going was saying, oh, but that part of the track's tricky. Remember to do this. Watch out for that. And I'm thinking, why don't you all just back off because actually, what you, I just want to go and drive it. Um, the chicane probably was my biggest worry, but it was the easiest bit for me. I've obviously got some kind of um, 
automated pilot within me that does chicanes really quite well um, because I did do that. That was cracking. I loved that. Well, as you said, you'd be thinking about the fact you were in a Mini. The last time your dad came out of that chicane was in a Ferrari 250 GTO. Absolutely, yes. And I think there is going to be some fun with all of that because um, the team that I'm racing with, Team Hunt and their, their Dorset Law, um, they've got a friend who's an artist who's going to do a limited print of my dad in that GTO coming out of the chicane but superimposing a picture of me because we've got some great photos of that, that trip out coming out of the, coming into the chicane behind my dad and we're going to sort of following in her dad's footsteps something like that and selling it as a limited edition for charity um, so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. But yes, I mean, going onto the track for the first time at the age of 64, scary, but, you know, you've got to do it. And if I only have one more year doing it, because it's not cheap, even at entry level, um, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. And, yeah, I, it made me realise, though, that I never really wanted to be a racing driver. Even, <laughs> But I think growing up, I always was really cross with dad whilst he wouldn't let me drive anything drive him anywhere so I'm now sort of saying okay now I'm doing it but in my on my own terms and I love the grassroots stuff but you haven't gone as far as to put the checkers around the helmet not yet I've got an artist friend well Huck my friend in Glasgow who's threatening to do something on my helmet on the helmet (laughs) so we'll have to see it would be I must admit it would be quite nice. In the, this is the 30th year of his anniversary of his death. It would maybe be quite nice to have a, a checkerboard around it, but I've got to be able to pay for a new helmet. And they're not cheap when you get these bespoke ones. Uh, and I think, you know, so we, we'll just have to see. But it's a, it's a helmet that works. That's the main thing. And you're now heavily involved in the uh, British Women Racing Drivers Club. Well, it's the Doghouse Owners Club, so it's the Women's Associates Racing uh, um, Club. Yes, I'm on the committee. And we're trying, you know, we raised money last year for Race Against Dementia. We'll be doing something similar this year with the quarterly lunches. Um, We'd like to be able to take it more trackside, which hopefully, because of my co-driver or I'm the co-driver of of this little mini we will be trackside flying the flag for the doghouse owners club so hopefully we'll be able to attract a few more members but really I think its place is certainly raising funds for charity but I think we're maybe going to start to look at raising funds for grassroots motor racing and potentially the families to help them if they've got challenges to get to the races, that kind of thing. Maybe looking at it in a slightly different way. Well, I notice there's, I won't name names, but there's certain racing drivers, women racing drivers, one in particular, we need more women in motor racing, we need more women in motor racing. Fair enough. Nobody ever comes out with the statement, it's money. The thing that stops people driving racing cars is money. Absolutely. And, you know, it's about the sponsorship. And I think, you know, there are lots of women in motorsport. There really are. When I do, you know, did the speed trials last year, there were a lot of women out on that track. 
Um, and it doesn't matter. We don't have to be out there getting the, the glitz and the glory. We just need to be out there enjoying ourselves, doing it because we want to do it. Um, joining in with the men, being as competitive as we can, because at the end of the day, it's about the fun, the camaraderie, the friendship, but also the networking. And, you know, I think women need to realise that they can perform at any level. But yes, they've got to have the money and, and the sponsorship. I mean, the one thing I've always said is a racing driver is a racing driver. And when I've spoken yes. to women, other women Absolutely. racing drivers, they've all said it doesn't make any difference. I don't look upon a driver and think, oh, it's a woman. No, it's another. It's they've, another. They've, got, they've got the Nomex romper suit on and away you go. Metal, yeah. It doesn't matter what you are. If you can pedal the metal and you've got the guts to maybe take a bit more of a risk and know what your car can do, then it doesn't matter. I must say it's bleeding frustrating when they beat you. <laughs> I can imagine, definitely. Um, but no, and it shouldn't matter. I'm not, I'm not somebody that stands up and says, oh, we need to have you know, women in motorsport and they need to be doing this and they need to have their own platforms. I don't agree, necessarily agree with that. I think if we're going to go out there and do it, um, it's about learning the trade. Learning yeah. the trade, actually, from you know, the bottom up. And, I mean, sponsorship is getting harder to acquire. People, no matter what anybody says, companies don't have the money to spend on it. And also, they're looking for a track record to sponsor, not somebody new. They, they want to see results that will tempt them to put some money their way. Well, either results or that story... I think there is still an element of businesses that maybe see a story and think, well, I'll back that one for a couple of years. The other thing is I think so many big businesses and companies are having to put so much back into the community, but in different ways. So maybe some, I mean, I know that um, when I was looking for a bit of sponsorship, I went to Be Wiser, which is a, an insurance company. Um, but a lot of their obligation now is to give back to the community, to the people of that community. So not really the high end Motor racing, that's just not acceptable in their books nowadays. So I think sponsorship has got harder. I've got a little bit of sponsorship um, for my entry fees from a local businessman who I've worked with in the community that thought, well, you're local, you help the community by what you do for a living, so I'm happy to help you, um, you know, follow your dream, follow your journey for as long as it takes, that kind of thing. Um, and also the really weird thing was I got my sponsorship for Goodwood last year was from a gin company, Classic Racing Spirit, which I just love. I love what they are. But, of course, I don't drink, so it was priceless. Um, but I think they might sponsor again this year as well. So, yeah. But um, it's hard. It's tough out there. But at the end of the day, if you want to do it, you can do it. There are so many good organisations. Motorsport UK are here. Even if you can't get into motor racing straight away, you can go and marshal. You can be a clerk of the course. You can learn how to do other things in motorsport. Because without those volunteers in motorsport, we don't run. Oh, no. If it wasn't for the marshals who do it for free, well, they'll get, they might get some sandwiches thrown in, but that's it. But that's it. And I think I'm, I'm campaigning for youth volunteering this year, trying to get the youth inspired into motorsport at different levels. Um, the 14, 15, 16-year-olds, I'm working with some schools. 
I've caught up with Motorsport UK today and they've agreed that they will come and work with me. We'll do some stuff together. I'm lucky that I've got Thruxton on my doorstep. So, you know, we can only go from here upwards. And I think if nothing else, you know, the motor racing is fun and it's fun. And it's maybe just a tick box for me um, saying, yep, Dad, I can do it too. But my passion is by giving something back to motorsport. And that's hopefully bringing the future young volunteers into motorsport so that, you know, that generation, it can continue in the vein that it is at the moment. So, Christian Island. Hopefully to become the legend that was her father, Innes. She's laughing, she's denying that. All the best for 2023 and thank you for rejoining me. It's so lovely to see you and enjoy them all. I'm here with Bill Vero. Now the name might not be familiar, but his family's products probably will be or probably were the famous Ever Oak helmets as worn by Sterling Moss, Jim Clark, Mike Hawthorne. Bill, welcome to the Backseat Driver. Uh, hi Mark, good to see you. What is the story about this? I mean, everybody associates motorsport with crash helmets, but there's nobody ever really thought about the history of the crash helmet. Well, the crash helmet started really with the TT helmets from Douglas Isle of Man from 1914 when they were made compulsory for motorcycle racing but for motor racing they weren't compulsory until the beginning of the 1950s when Earl Howe uh, introduced the British Racing Drivers Club and the British Grand Prix at Silverstone because they were always classed as a bit girly, weren't they, in many ways. I mean, they preferred the, uh, the cloth of the leather helmet and goggles, and that was it. That's absolutely so. Uh, Goldie Gardner in the 30s promoted helmets, and he was the, um, you know, the Jackie Stewart of his day, trying to promote circuit safety and helmet safety. But, again, it wasn't compulsory to wear a helmet until the beginning of the 1950s Uh, at that time helmets were made from felt and goss which are an entirely natural material goss is uh, a mixture of shellac which comes from the Indian lac beetle which is an excretion which basically is is beetle shit for want of a, a better better word but this is mixed with ammonia um, made into a mixture called coodle uh, ammonia and water and it's a very thick glue like substance and then the felt hood was the basis of a helmet that was on a block and the strips of cotton were dipped into the coodle and layered onto the velvet and ironed down Everoak perfected a uh, by pressing them in a mould which made them much stronger and the motor racing helmets of the 30s and 40s and 50s were originally all made from shellac then of course um, material science came in and glass fibre came to the fore 
and was less labour intensive. But um, my father was uh, flew with the RAF in the war. Post-war, he uh, the helmet company was a family company established in 1878. But he was a motorsport enthusiast, and he was a member of the steering wheel club, where he obviously got to know some of the drivers of the day. Mike Hawthorne was a personal friend, and Mike always wore an Everoke. Because um, what didn't he? Mike wore the one with like the big clear visor around the front of it, didn't he? He did. He ha- had the visor around the front, but uh, Pa also developed f- for him in uh, in about 1956, 57 a glass fibre helmet with temple protection that extended the shell down and this was the helmet that Mike wore to his championship which I believe was 58. Uh, immediately following that uh, they then produced a helmet which was the first jet shaped helmet the Racemaster model which extended down over the years and was very similar to the helmets worn by the American Air Force in the Korean War and this was the natural step forward. Um, These were very labour intensive, had concussion tapes, cork shock absorbing lining um, and had terrelene straps so they were a step forward in safety and the next major step forward was polystyrene liners which we went from cork to polystyrene Uh, this came from America Uh, there was an American company called Top Tex and they, uh, Phil Hill wore one of their helmets to his world championship and it was the first helmet to have a polystyrene liner. Uh, Richie Ginter had one as well and that was the next step forward and Roy Richer of Bell Helmets bought the Top Tex company and the patent for the polystyrene liner which was a very smart move. Then through the 60s with Jack Brabham, Graham Hill, Ennis Ireland, Jim Clark, uh, Everoak helmets which were made largely under the Les Leston brand name or Herbert Johnson's as we were London based we made for them, uh, ruled the scene until Bell came to the fore and in, in 60. Eight, Roy Richer introduced the full face helmet which was a major step forward and um, since then the other major developments in, in helmet safety of course have been the um, hands device which was uh, an enormous step forward obviously and not only um, that the uh, liners, the polystyrene liner was developed with what we call conehead liners. These are interlocking separate um, polystyrene liners, rather like a hedgehog shape where they interlocked and under impact, they're two different densities. You have a lighter density next to the head, a higher density next to the shell, and they interreact and distribute the load very well indeed. This has been another step forward which is really where we are today with the carbon fibers which are much lighter but you've got a helmet with 40 mil shock absorbing liner you've got the hands device which stabilizes the neck uh, the helmet probably weighs round about or just over a kilo with with the visor and with the head weight you're looking round about six seven kilos 
and of course um, you know the massive G loadings now that are in F1 and in all forms of motorsport with the improvement in tyres uh, it's essential that you get next support now as well and what they'd found from some of the major accidents in NASCAR racing uh, back in the 70s and 80s you were getting people having big impacts uh, walking away from the accident but then getting a, a bleed in the uh, high spine or brain stem uh, and dropping down dead a couple of hours later and effectively what was happening it was the first stage of the head actually lifting off the spine uh, you know it wasn't becoming detached but it was damaging it and the hands device has obviously done completely stabilized that but now of course some of the modern formula one accidents are almost like plane crashes but we've come a long way from leather straps concussion tapes no padding at all and these developments largely claim from tragedies um, first of all uh, there was the death of aircraftsman Shaw who was Lawrence of Arabia and he died in a motorcycle accident but he wasn't uh, killed outright a neurosurgeon from Nuffield uh, was deeply affected by the death of Lawrence and wrote a leading paper in the Lancet regarding head injury in relation to protective headwear and in particular he suggested that padding should be introduced between the shell and the concussion tapes as the original helmets had no shock absorbing padding. Uh, this was picked up by my father Bill and he introduced cork safety padding, uh, shock absorbing padding into the crown of helmets and this was one of the major step forwards in the development of head uh, protective headwear. Uh, following on from that, there was another tragic accident. Um, the uh, founder of the Snell Foundation, George Snively, was a, a doctor of physics and medicine. He was racing West Coast in the late 50s, Austin Healy's, and his great friend Peter Snell was racing a TR at one meeting where he was the medical officer his friend Peter rolled his TR and he had an old style helmet on which was ripped off his head and he died of his injuries uh, George uh, Dr George Snively was deeply affected by this and decided to form the Snell Foundation in Peter's memory and to improve the testing and uh, protection of motor racing helmets and this was where tragedy can turn into benefits uh, both, both the neurosurgeon and George Snively were responsible for moving helmet testing and development forward How did you test them? Well, the original testing, it all came from British standards in the 1950s. The first helmet standard in the world, BS 2001, was uh, created. My father was a founder member of that particular committee. And the, they had an accelerometer in a head form. You'd put the helmet on the head form and then drop the weight onto the helmet and measure the transmitted force. 
then there were additional tests for penetration resistance and for harness test strengths and to test the buckle so the helmet wouldn't leave the head. Um, George, in fact, developed this with the falling head form, which was a much better way of testing helmets, where you actually dropped the helmet onto the anvil rather than the anvil onto the helmet. Um, and the method they used allowed you to test further down the helmet. So the original helmets had a concussion tape. Um, this uh, cradled the head but it only tended to work with crown impacts, but not for impacts lower down the helmet. So the Snell standards then tested further down the helmets, which was far more demanding. And also they reduced the level of transmitted force, which again meant that a helmet had to have thicker liners and absorb more energy. Obviously, uh, the bigger a helmet, the more likely it is to protect your head but at the same time there could be increase of rotation and certainly if you had a massive helmet then of course we come into the situation of neck injuries so the more compact the helmet the lower the footprint in impact is obviously better but a smooth rounded surface but what I'm particularly interested in they're doing a lot of research now at Imperial College and some of the accelerometers they've developed, you know, it's amazing that one now is going into a rugby ball and they can measure the risk, the velocity, uh, the energy of a kick and the rotation, which is really interesting because rotational impact, I think the testing of that will be the next major step in helmet development. The uh, particularly if uh, there's a rotation the brain is a semi-liquid mass and there are cross-linked veins which can be ripped or torn under impact so being able to test this or measure the effectiveness of a helmet in itself will be uh, a great asset to manufacturers so they can establish how well their helmet is performing and strangely enough i even wonder if the head cradle, which uh, obviously has been replaced with thicker padding, but that might not be effective in conjunction with the thicker padding, but of course this would be quite labour intensive to, to include, and of course you need the test method to see if it actually works or not, but that will be for others to do. Now, talking about modern helmets, I mean, modern helmets also have communication systems and various other things built into them. How does this affect the, the safety of the helmet? It's, it completely unaffects them now. The, the radio comms are very, very compact. In the early days, there we used to test the helmets with the comms in situ to make sure that they, they wouldn't cause any additional injury to the wearer. Uh, in particular, in the early days with the police, uh, they weren't allowed to wear a full face helmet. The Home Office decreed that it would uh, make them appear too threatening to the public. And this was before they had the fold up full face arrangements. So they had to ride with open face helmets and wind noise became an issue. But we made a special earpiece for them. Now, it's like I said, famous drivers from back in the 50s and 60s wore the Everall helmets. How did this come about, or were you about the only helmet manufacturer? 
Well, my father's particular interest was motorsport. Um, he was on the original committees and, and he worked with RA, RAC Motorsports, Dean Delamont, I think, at the time. And they, they did a lot of development work on motor racing helmets. Being London-based, uh, he knew Les Leston, who flew in Lancaster bombers like my father. He got on very well with Les, and Les opened the first speed shop in London. So he was in High Holborn. We were in south-east London in Dulwich. Uh, also, Herbert Johnson's. They were the, the people to go to for helmets, but they were all made by us in south-east London and literally five miles from New Bond Street where they were. So what made the guys choose your helmets? Because was there an alternative at the time at all? Was Everhawk the, the helmet to wear? There were other alternatives, but largely they wore our helmets, probably partly because we were London-based and one of the few manufacturers there. Um, also, we had a wealth of experience. My grandfather made flying helmets in the First World War. Um, we'd made racing helmets uh, in the 1930s, and we also made jockey skulls and um, jockey skull caps. So industrial helmets, fireman's helmets, you know, we had a wealth of knowledge on head protection. So in many ways, a lot of the helmets, though they're used for different purposes, were inherently the same. Well, the original motor racing helmet developed from the polo helmet. Um, helmet makers were great innovators, and if you had a mould shape and you could adapt it for another product, um, it, it made sense. It cut down the tooling cost. And as materials changed, uh, using those shapes, we went from goss to glass fibre and eventually to um, carbon fibres, carbon fibre reinforcement. Um, one of the areas we used to reinforce, the thing is with helmet design, the crown of the helmet is the strongest and the weakest part of a helmet is the edge. And in fact, you want to try and reverse this. You want the edge much stronger and the crown flexible so that there isn't so much energy transmitted to the high spine. So, I mean, <clears throat> now uh, Everhawk went out, well, Everhawk ceased production. Uh, when did it come to an end? Well, the company ended in, in the 1990s. Uh, it was a particularly difficult time. Uh, the share ownership gets split with family companies and... Uh, sadly it was wound up and I myself moved moved into the arms industry for a period and then started my own equestrian helmet company later on. So the helmets that you can buy now are quite unique aren't they because I know you were saying you sit there with a cup of coffee and a radio and uh, produce them as and when. Yeah well I spent 60 years in the helmet industry and now just as a hobby I, I make continuation helmets, which, which obviously are not approved. They're a collector's item made by the guy who's actually made a lot of helmets. I, I, um, I sprayed Innis Island's first helmet with... Well, I didn't spray it. I hand-painted it when I was still at school. That was in 58. So that was the famous uh, chequered flag band that ran round it? Yep, that was the... I actually painted that. That was for Herbert Johnson's. Uh, by 1960, I was working as a helmet moulder and on day release to the London College of Fashion, 
where I studied uh, factory management and tailoring and textiles. Um, and yep, I've spent all my life since then making headwear. So how long does it take you to make one? And is the process the same as it was? Virtually, uh, I hand stitch a lot of it, but uh, it, you know, I, I just make it in my own pleasure. Cup, cup of tea and a radio and uh, uh, doing what I've done all my life. It's literally a work of art, but I, it, 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 you know, it's not an industry, it's a hobby. I've got a huge collection of helmets and I occasionally sell some of those and uh, I renovate helmets as well. Because if you look at any of the big events, like the, the historic events, like Mia Miglia, anything like that, they nearly all seem to wear one of your helmets. Well, one of ours or one or two copies that are made. But, but um, yeah, we, obviously our helmets are not approved in any way. And, of course, for the real serious classic motoring, you've got to be under FIA or um, RAC regulations with your helmet. Is there anybody to carry on the Everoak name? Or does your family want to carry on? Or have you taught anybody your skills so they can carry on the Everoak brand and the Everoak helmets? Well, the, the family um, have, have the name registered. Uh, I've got two sons. One's a school teacher and a very good welder who restores classic cars. And my other son's working in Dubai. But... Uh, yeah, the, the name will continue, but how long for, I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, do you wear one yourself? Yeah, occasionally, but uh, not, not, not in anger anymore. I do the odd track day, but even, even those are wearing out. But I actually wear a bell for that. <laughs> because you're to be seen in your Austin Healy, aren't you? Yeah, occasionally, but uh, uh, I have visited the Bell Helmet Factory in the 70s with George Snively. And um, I never got to meet Roy Richard, but he was uh, a great helmet pioneer in his day. And, of course, there's some marvellous helmets made now. R.I., Showy, Bell, uh, 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 the one you wear. Stan 21. 21 and, uh, and, and others, you know, they're, they're at the FIA and uh, RAC and BSI approved, yeah. So you were saying you have some famous helmets. Whose helmets have you got? Well, no, no one's now, but I, I made them in period. I, uh, recently, until Sterling died, we were making um, his helmets through him, through the signature store. And um, I, I also met Jim Clark in period, made his helmets, uh, met Graham Hill, of course, met Damon Hill, met Johnny Herbert. And Johnny Herbert, in fact... Uh, in his terrible accident with Gregor Foytek, was wearing one of the last Everoaks, the Corsa helmet, which I think probably saved his life. But, um, yeah, we've, uh, over the years, have made helmets for all the top drivers. So, what is still to come? Because would you ever consider going into modern helmet manufacturing, or would the name ever appear on a modern helmet? No, I, I don't think that. I, I still have an interest in in helmet development and keep a close eye, uh, particularly on the testing and with one or two um, uh, of the old helmet makers that I, I'm still in touch with. Uh, uh, Tony Palkowski, who used to be with Champion Helmets, he's retired now. But Tony and I often swap notes and we've been keeping a close eye on the situation of uh, cumulative concussions 
in rugby and in soccer, although these are more from a jarring point of view and a helmet wouldn't necessarily protect the players because people now are immensely powerful and particularly in rugby, very, very strong. So that's something that needs to be addressed. But the the head injury criteria is largely helping with that. But of course, we dealt with that with the jockeys at one time, where they were wearing just a, they had to weigh in with a very lightweight skull, which offered them no protection at all. And we developed the um, the current jockey skull, which uh, we did with Bruff Scott and Brigadier Teacher. Bill Vero, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much for joining me on The Backseat Driver. My absolute pleasure, Mark. I'm here with Pierre Summy from, I'll let him pronounce this, News d'Ancienne, which is basically ancient things news. (laughs) That's probably the best way of translating it, yeah. Basically, if you push it, quite literally it's going to be news from the ancients or something like that but uh yeah that's uh, that's about it <laughs> now this website in my opinion typifies the france or french classic car movement the one th- there are some fantastic published magazines such as gerard gamon's auto diva but it's online that a lot of the french magazines have taken to and they do it extremely well well, thank you very much for that. Uh, we're just basically a bunch of uh, friends speaking about our passion about classic cars whatsoever. And it's been almost 10 years now. And uh, step by step, we've been now, I think we are the first ones dedicated to classic cars now on Internet in French. I mean, so how can I say it? Um, so, yeah, I think that's we're the place to be if, you, if you're looking at French stuff in, uh, on the internet concerning classic cars. Now the French are, one thing I have noticed, like a lot of European countries, are passionate about their classics. But unlike England that has the famous classic car show where everybody parks in a field gets two deck chairs out and has a picnic, the French classic cars, their events move about. Okay, Retromobile is a static event, but you couldn't really drive the entirety of Retromobile through Paris. It would bring it to a halt, and it's bad enough as it is, it's Paris. Um, but the French enjoy going out and driving their classics en masse. Well, you have actually the two of them. Uh, you have the classic uh, gatherings like you have in the UK, here and there, I mean, most in, let's say, smaller parts of France or more remote parts of France. And you have as well plenty of clubs or um, associations uh, um, that are definitely organizing a few, let's say, short trips here and there, touristic rallies and stuff like that. Yeah, people tend to drive them a bit more and a bit longer than uh, than English people overall. Even so, uh, French uh, owners wouldn't go abroad with their car like English people do for Le Mans Classic for example we wouldn't see that much, that this much going the other way around <laughs> well the one thing it's like we were saying before we went on air the thing about France it's about four to five times larger than England so the, Fr- the French have a lot more to go at 
Well, yes and no, because if, if you think about it, yes, French is larger, but it's not taller. <laughs> I mean, try to go from uh, from the south of England to to Scotland, for example, and it's going to take the same time, if not more, than going across France north to south. So, but we have to. Uh, I have to admit that we have maybe um, a better roadway, uh, road rocks overall than... <laughs> the roads are quite good in France. Yes, that's the thing. We, we, we won't lose a, a tyre on a pothole, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, it's becoming quite a popular sport in England now, is blowing your tyres out on potholes. But, I mean, what do you put the passion for French cars down to? Because, I mean, I think you've probably more manufacturers to go at. Because... Back at the turn of the 20th century, there were over 250 different manufacturers in France. And, okay, most of them have vanished. But, I mean, there's just a lot of different cars to go at. Yeah, but uh, at the same the same way, you have plenty of manufacturers to go through. If you if you look into British manufacturers as well, the the thing is, uh, yes, in France, most of them vanished uh, with Second World War. So obviously, you have plenty if you want to go really in depth with uh, historical cars. But classics overall, let's say back uh, from the fifties to nowadays. Uh, I think we are a bit short-handed compared to what you have over here. We don't have all the small manufacturers like you have with Radical, Westfield, or stuff like that. We don't have them anymore in France. So, yes, if you have people really, I have to admit it, a bit older than usual, they will have in-depth knowledge, if not incredible knowledge, about all those classics from before World War One and stuff like that, we won't have the uh, you, you won't have the same stuff obviously than uh, than in the UK, but overall, like in any country, I've been uh, um, enthusiasts are the same. They just want to share. And the one thing I do notice in France, there is a passion for British sports cars: Austin Healy's, MGs, Triumphs. Um, I mean, you had your own sports cars, but there seems to be the passion for the English ones. Well, uh, we, we, we love things we have to repair, so I guess <laughs> English cars are a bit more interesting on that than, than French ones, even if Citroëns can be quite interesting with the hydraulics uh, leaking. But no, uh, the, the thing is, um, that comes from uh, the decisions that were made after World War II. Basically, in France, it was uh, you had the what was called the Ponce Plan, which uh, made the industry go only to have people have affordable cars. Yeah. While uh, in the UK, the 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 goal was to export, so you had plenty of affordable sports cars coming from the UK that you couldn't find in any equivalent in France at that time, for example. So, yeah, I mean, there was the big drive to export, because, I mean, in England, unless you were exporting, you weren't allowed to manufacture cars. Most cars ended up in America, but, so, but the French managed to acquire their own, uh, shall we say, own supply of them. Yeah, well, we always find a way to have something, uh, <laughs> you, you know, even if it's quite, let's say, slightly out of uh, the legal path, we, we could find a way to, to get to our get supply. Right. Yeah. Um, the thing is, yes, we had a lot of uh, cars coming, especially uh, after World War Two, coming back from Germany, basically having American cars that were flown 
flown to Germany yeah. and people buying them uh, during the occupation just after war uh, just after the war and people were buying them from Americans in Germany and stuff like that and you had a lot of them coming from uh, to France from that uh, that supply point for example which is the most popular make of classic cars i mean everybody in england most people think of the 2cv the citroen things like that but and i know they are popular in france but which is the most popular make and model of classic car in france well let's be honest the 2cv has quite a quite a, a high level of sympathy and everything that's probably the most iconic car you can find in france because basically it's been built from what 38 to 90 so obviously everyone has at least known one well, maybe not the younger generations, but uh, people 30 and above have uh, always seen a 2CV at some point in their life. Could be the Renault 4 as well, even it's at, at a far lower extent, but now they're gaining a bit of it because uh, since the 2CV prices have been soaring for the last 20 years or so, people tend to go to, let's say, cheaper options now. But yeah, I think the most iconic French car will be the 2CV because everyone has known one um, you'd go for Bugatti obviously uh, if you want to go from prestigious cars it's going to be Bugatti it's going to be Delay it's going to be Delage but yeah if you just want to pick one yes it's going to be the 2CV definitely and you mentioned the Renault 4 the interesting thing is the Renault 4 outsold the 2CV but most people don't realise that no they don't but the the thing is uh, the, the Renault 4 cheated a bit because uh, it was the the, the the vehicle of choice for any um, administration in France be it uh, EDF uh, postal services and they all had uh, a Renault 4 while the 2CV didn't sell that well for um, let's say uh, professional purposes so Renault are all the cheated then <laughs> <laughs> Slightly, but uh, it, it was uh, easier as well for them to sell a bit cheaper because at that time Renault was a. Uh, um, oh, so, sorry, I'm losing my English over there. Uh, was a state company, so it made it easier to keep the prices low while the 2CV was raising a bit. And there had been several attempts to replace it without succeeding while the Renault 4 has been going along and always found its place somewhere in uh, in Renault range while the 2CV was always a bit awkward. And the one, I mean, one, there's two French cars I would love to own. One is the Citroën Traction and the other is uh, the Renault Alpine A110. I know they've just brought the, the, the modern version of it, but the original. They are two cars that I would love to own. How are they looked upon in France, the Traction and the Alpine? Well, the, the, the Traction has a bit of an um, older people uh, image to it uh, nowadays. I mean, uh, it's still a, uh, a car of choice where, where you want to go to classic French cars. But um, its uh, sympathy is kind of uh, is waning with the, the older generation, unfortunately dying. Uh, while the Alpine uh, A110, sorry, is still going through the roof because it's the one with the, it's one of the biggest um, um, competition pedigree that you can find uh, in France and everything. 
Uh, and I suppose it works out handy that uh, one of its most famous drivers, Jean-Claude Andrewey, is still around to champion the car, both old and modern. Well, definitely it helps. And uh, since I'm, I've been born really close to Dieppe, I've been seeing them since a very young age. So uh, there's always a bit of uh, nostalgia going around it. And surprisingly, even if the A310 had a biggest Um, a bigger pedigree overall uh, it's still going back to the A110 maybe because it's the purest one it's definitely a sports car while while the A310 was more of a GT I don't know if it has an impact on it but uh, that's definitely how people uh, remember them now and the one interesting thing your uh, your website uh, that once again I shall allow you to pronounce uh, is hopefully going to branch out into England well branch out into England that's uh, that may be overstating it a bit uh, we have one guy me <laughs> based in the UK and, uh, and I'm covering a bit of events uh, here and there just to show something a bit different than what we can share from France and uh, we do the, it as well with a few events in Belgium and Germany as well uh, I think we even had few guys going to Italy for once in a while you know just to share something different you know we, we don't want to um, end up enclosed uh, in just one topic and, uh, and just this one we want to see our passion shared all over the world if we could but at the moment we are just going with uh, Western Europe and when the, uh, your website gets updated it will have the button at the top French or British you'll be able to click the Union Jack and it'll all translate well, we hope so, but uh, that's uh, selling it a bit early at the moment. We don't even know when we're going to be able to do that. But that's definitely something we, we would like to do uh, at some point in the future. So once again, what's the website and how do people get to it? Well, the website is called News d'Ancienne, so I don't go up to uh, spelling it because I guess it's going to be a bit long and boring for, for you guys. I guess Mark will uh, put a, a, a link when, uh, with, his with his podcast or something. But basically, we're just we're 100% digital, so you can find us in any uh, magazine or um, um, weekly pr- publication or whatever. So it's only on our website, uh, at the moment only in French. Uh, most of the, our articles are Google Translation uh, friendly, so you won't be too at a loss if you use that option. <laughs> uh, and that's about it. Pierre Summy, I look forward to one day working with you, but until then, it's been a pleasure welcoming you to Backseat Driving. Likewise, and uh, God knows what waits, us, waits for us in the future. beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytyres.co.uk. 